Our scripture lesson this morning is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So we're taking a little break from Mark. Pastor Dave asked me to speak, but he did not pass along his notes. So we will, we will come back to Mark next week. <clears throat> and as you are turning there, let me just put in a little plug for next Saturday's Youth Group Pancake Breakfast. It is a great breakfast. Those of you who have been there in the past know this already. Uh, we have lots of good stuff coming down the pike for that. Doors open at 7.30, close at 11. You're welcome to come anytime. You can eat as much as you like while you're there. Our youth should have tickets today, which are a little cheaper in advance, but you may get them at the door as well. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to focus on the latter part of the chapter for our sermon, but I would like to read the chapter in its entirety just to give us the context for what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians here. So, beginning at verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret of lawlessness is already at work, But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts, and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Thank you, Father, for this, your word. Thank you that you use it to work your work in each of us as individuals 
and us together as your body. Please do it now. May all that is not of you fall by the wayside and all that is of you cling strongly to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alexander Hamilton is credited with the quote, those who stand for nothing will fall for anything. Yet standing for something in our day is getting to be more and more difficult. The literal act of standing proves difficult for some people. Franklin Delano Roosevelt is an example of this after he contracted polio at the age of 39. If you've ever seen the movie Pearl Harbor, there's a scene in this movie where he struggles to stand in order to motivate his demoralized military advisors following Pearl Harbor. Uh, that movie is not quite accurate as to who FDR was. He was as private as he possibly could be about his disability. And he tried as hard as he could not to let it interfere with his role as president. Uh, in the FDR library, there's a quote here that says, he was not completely comfortable being open about his situation. Often he was required to navigate to a podium or area in which he would greet listeners. Of course, FDR could have simply chosen to remain in his wheelchair during public events, but he wanted to assure America that he was capable. He never wanted Americans to get the impression that he was helpless, so it was important for him to at least seem as if he could walk. He devised a method of walking in which he used a cane in the arm of his son or advisor for balance. He would maneuver his hips and swing his legs forward in, swaying, in a swaying motion to make it appear as if he was walking. He worked hard at showing strength to the American people. Well, just as the act of physical standing and walking proved difficult for Roosevelt, so too can standing for what we believe about God. Here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we find help for this task. The first thing we must recognize is that this help does not come from within ourselves. The Thessalonians were facing alarming rumors that the day of the Lord had already come. And Paul seeks to put them at ease by setting forth some facts concerning the day of the Lord. The man of lawlessness had not yet come. Counterfeit miracles would still need to take place. And there would be a wholesale abandonment of the truth. Now, you may or may not have been thinking about the day of the Lord lately. Yet we too are living in unsettling days of rebellion and rejection of not only God's truth, but truth as a concept period. So what is the help that we find here in 2 Thessalonians 2? Well, we're going to focus here on verses 13 through 17, and we'll see that God has made provisions that will enable us to stand through adversity. 
And the first provision that God has made comes to us in verses 13 and 14. We stand by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now notice in these verses who the active person is here. It is God. It is God who loved us. It is God who chose us. It is God who saved us and God who called us. I don't know if you recognize the name of Frederick Buechner, but he says this. The grace of God means something like, here is your life. You might never have been, but you are, because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It's for you I created the universe. I love you. There is only one catch. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you'll reach out and take it. Maybe being able to reach out and take it is a gift too. End quote. And we do see that here in the passage that we are called to belief. In verse 13, it's through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. What a contrast there is in this passage between those who believe and are grounded and centered in the truth and those who don't believe and have swallowed the lie. Did you notice it's called the lie wholesale? Jesus said to his disciples in John 16 and verse 13, he says, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. So the idea of the spirit's work and the truth are woven together in both of these passages. The means by which we are sanctified through the spirit is the gospel. Paul calls it in verse 14 endearingly our gospel. Not that he owned it exclusively, but that it was very dear to him. And what is the result? That's there in verse 14 as well. The result is the sharing in the glory of Christ. Can you think of anything more incredible than that? The promise of sharing in the glory of Christ. So, God has provided the spirit who sanctifies us. Secondly, in verse 15, we stand by the serious study of the scriptures. It says, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Stand firm. That word is also translated persevere or persist. The word teachings there has also been translated as traditions. Maybe that's in your version that you're using. Now, Jesus condemned the traditions of men where they were elevated above the scripture. Yet within scripture is embedded traditions that we dare not let go of. 
And what's interesting, I think all of us have different personalities when it comes to traditions. Some people love traditions and they want to hold on to them as hard as they can for as long as they can in their lives. Others of us don't like traditions so much. We like things to be new and fresh and different. But the idea, I think, is to say the word of God is something that we don't want to forget about. We don't want to take lightly. Now for the Thessalonians, the word of God came to them by the word of mouth and by letter. We have the word of God in the form of a book. What is the assumption implicit in this command to hold on to the teachings? Somebody say it out loud. What's the assumption? If you're going to hold on to something, I'm going to hold on to this book. What does it mean? What's the assumption? You're all looking at me with blank faces. <laughs> the assumption is that I have the book in my hand. You can't hold on to something that you don't have. So the word of God and its teachings, its traditions, is something he's assuming that the Thessalonians have. Is it correct to assume that we have them also? In our world where we have so many choices, I think there's a growing danger for us as Christians to approach the word of God in the same way. In other words, to come to God's word and say, this is a part that I like, I'll hold on to that one. But this one over here, not my favorite. I'll kind of slip that under the table. God calls us to hold on to all of his word, whether it suits our preferences or not. We need to pay attention to all of scripture. And there are two common excuses for not studying scripture well. One is the first is usually, and this is coming from... Uh, R.C. Sproul, he says, the first usually offered is that the Bible is difficult to understand and only highly skilled theologians with technical training are equipped for the task. He says, this, however, is too often what we want to hear in order to quiet our consciences for neglecting our duty of studying the scriptures. The 16th century reformers answered this excuse by advocating the, here's the word, perspicuity. Say that five times, perspicuity of scripture, meaning the scripture's clarity. They maintain not all parts of scripture are equally clear, but that the Bible is necessarily clear in its basic message. This means if we can read, we can, with the Spirit's illumination, grasp the essentials. The second excuse is that the Bible is too boring. We complain we need someone to make it come alive for us, but it is alive, and its, word, and its words make us come alive. There's nothing dull about the drama, passion, pathos, crime, devotion, and real life depicted in scripture. The ancient settings may seem foreign to us, but the struggles and issues biblical characters faced 
are the same ones we also face. As followers of the Lord Jesus, however, we should be motivated to study the Bible in order to continue growing in the things we have learned. Excuse me. We need to depend on the understanding of the backgrounds and contexts of scriptural books in order to better understand and apply our lives to the truths they contain. What's he saying? In other words, we need to work hard at the study of scripture, not to take it nonchalantly. And again, the danger for those of us who have been studying it for many years is that we would become lackadaisical in our approach to the scriptures. So we have the spirit, we have the serious study of scripture. Thirdly, we stand by the strength of God's encouragement. And this comes to us in verses 16 and 17. Paul pronounces a blessing on the Thessalonians. And in that blessing, he talks about, first, the agent by which we are encouraged. God has communicated in many ways through the centuries. He's used angels, prophets, counselors, many different kinds of people. These are in addition to the incredible general revelation we see every day around us in nature. Paul's desire is that the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God the Father would encourage the hearts of his people. Now, for those of you who are going to be going to the Trinity class very soon, this is an interesting passage of scripture to look at because some of the pronouns here are singular, and yet he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul is wanting us to understand, I believe, in this passage that the two persons are one God. The means, once again, it is by his love and his grace. The nature of this encouragement, do you notice that? It is eternal. It doesn't wear out or go away. Yeah, we are never stuck. We can always come for the encouragement that we need. A man by the name of F.W. Hertzberger wrote this poem in reference to Catherine, the wife of a depressed Martin Luther. Okay? So this is about a situation in Martin Luther's life where he was depressed. One day when skies loomed the blackest, this greatest and bravest of men lost heart and in an over-sad spirit, refused to take courage again. Neither eating or drinking or speaking to anxious wife, children, or friends, till Catherine dons widow garments and deepest mourning pretends. Surprised, Luther asked why she sorrowed. Dear doctor, his Katie replied, I have cause for the saddest of weeping, for God in his heaven has died. Her gentle rebuke did not fail him. He laughingly kissed his wife's spouse, took courage and banished his sorrow, and joy reigned again in the house. It was absurd to Martin Luther to think that God had died. <clears throat> 
And if God is not dead, then there is courage and encouragement available for all of us. The process used is first to reach our hearts, but then we are strengthened for purpose. And that comes through our good deeds and through our words. If we are living a life of encouragement in the Lord Jesus Christ, in, the God, in God, then it comes out in the way we speak to the people around us on the job, in the things we do at school, in each aspect of our life, this encouragement is shown forth. I wonder this morning, do you need encouragement? Do you need strength to stand? What are the barriers and problems that you are currently facing? In God, we have an eternal source of encouragement and hope. One of my favorite hymns, I believe, sums this up very well. Concerning the spirit, I know not how the spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. Concerning the word, I know not how the saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. And concerning encouragement, I know not when my Lord may come at night or noonday fair, nor if I'll walk the veil with him or meet him in the air. Then the chorus goes, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Let's pray. Father, our confidence and our strength is in you and the work that you have accomplished. Thank you that we are centered in your spirit, that we live and breathe and have our being in you. Thank you that you've given us your word, which shall stand forever. And thank you for your presence and encouragement in our lives that will never, ever end as well. For the one who is struggling this morning with decisions or anxiety, Lord, may these words sink deep within that person's heart. And may that make a difference, not only for today, but for the days to come. We, we all need it at times, Lord, and so bring back to our minds the teachings that will help us to stand. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.